Hello, Knights. Dylan C. here, and welcome to the newest episode of the Night Reader Podcast. I need to say a few things first before we delve in. Firstly, I know it's been quite a while, honestly, since there's been any action here. I know that the podcast has been slow and just MIA. Of course, I have wonderful reasons why. I have recently had a wonderful opportunity for work, one that I've been working for all these years has an amazing cause, and incredibly, uses all the skills that I've learned through creating Night Reader over these years. Uh, everything Night Reader has taught me, I'm able to utilize here, and for a good cause. It's been incredible, and uh, I'd like to introduce it to you guys soon in one of the upcoming episodes, but uh, not today. I've been traveling and experiencing a lot of new things, um, and this newfound success, if you can call it that, and it's uh, been a whirlwind for me. I cannot believe it, and I'm on track to help others in a huge way. So whoever you are, if you're a new listener, or a long-time listener who's been missing the show, I welcome you. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for your patience, your attention, your love, and your support. Night Reader is so very important to my heart, and I will follow through with completing Moby Dick and further. I have been so blessed to have the show still doing well recently, even during my months off in this hiatus. So I thank you all so deeply. Please continue to do all that you can. My book's going to be out soon. Follow my socials to learn more about what I'm doing in all aspects. My creative life, my work, all that stuff. Today, we're going to delve right back into the Moby Dick where we left off with the town hose story. Speaking of, how did you enjoy that? Did you enjoy the voices and everything like that? Let me know on socials. Let Jack Luna know if, if you liked him on, on Night Reader, you know? Um, it was interesting and a heavy chapter, for sure. It showed us a lot of backstory. It may seem unimportant at the time, but some of the characters will pop up in the story later on. So be sure to pay attention to the last episode and its inhabitants. Where does the story lead directly after the town hose story? Well, we're presented with three chapters full of information regarding how humans have viewed whales throughout history and Mr. Melville's brilliant thought process surrounding this. Not only does it give us many wonderfully crafted sentences to enjoy, but it teaches us a lot, shows Herman's worldly knowledge, as I always say, and gives us amazing images for us to work with in our minds. These three chapters also seem to progress historically, moving from monstrous images of whales to more proper images, and eventually into spiritual chapter, regarding how the whale has been utilized by man, and how leviathans have been a subject of mystery and sometimes godliness to mankind. So please sit back and enjoy these incredibly insightful and fun chapters with me. Too often I see folks turned off by these sorts of chapters, and I understand, but I implore you to try to ingest them, as they will only add to the philosophical point of view you will most likely find while reading these books. Well, Herman begins by stating that he will soon paint for us the true image of a whale, as well as he can without a paint and a canvas. He has seen them up close, he's walked on their backs as they were moored beside the whale ship. He's seen them dissected. He knows the animals inside and out, truly. It's no wonder he finds such humor in the historical findings of whales and leviathans. 
This chapter is so dubbed of the monstrous pictures of whales. Herman plans to set the world right regarding what whales are truly like in nature. And this was a time when no images or video were available to the public, or anyone for that matter. Only those who had gone whaling had ever viewed the whale in full animation in true forms of life. Herman believes that the, quote, primal source of those monstrous imaginings of whales has stemmed from ancient sculptures crafted by Hindu, Egyptian, and Grecian peoples. Unquote. Herman really meant this as saying lack of judgment. Herman believes that, of course, these times in history were incredibly inventive, and he's right, but he also caused these periods of time unscrupulous, meaning lacking in principles. I think Herman really meant this as saying lack of judgment regarding creating art that is accurate or overly imaginative and ambitious. He references the images of dolphins drawn with scale armor and helmeted heads, and mentions that ever since these time periods, distant time periods, the same has happened with the images of whales, being overly imaginative and often inaccurate, even to this day and age, where scientific images were entirely incorrect. And we're talking about Herman's time here. Our first heavy historical reference is that of the Elephanta Caves in India. I'm not sure how Herman knows so much about this place, and how it looks and feels. I'm really not sure if he ever had the opportunity to visit them. So it's a bit remarkable how he knows so much about them, and he describes them as if he wrote this chapter sitting on the cavern floors. Now, Elephanta Caves are very, very interesting, and full of almost endless ancient carvings of gods, goddesses, creatures, demons, animals, scriptures, and so very much more. It's really interesting to search up images of this place. You can even find images of the specific carving of a whale or fish human that Herman speaks of. Although it's been heavily deteriorated, even in the last 200 years or so, I don't believe the portion of the half-man, half-fish Herman is speaking about even exists anymore. At least wholly. Herman amazingly states here that these endless sculptures through these caves depict every possible future job or placement of mankind, far before most of them even existed, foreshadowing upon the world in an unbelievable way. It is no wonder that the noble act of whaling was also depicted in these ancient times. These caves are a matter of their own, and could almost be endlessly explored, delved into, and talked about. There is one specific sculpture of the Matse Avatar, the god Vishnu, who was depicted as a half-man, half-fish, or Leviathan. But Herman claims the images to be all wrong, as the whale half of the sculpture ends in more of a snake-like tail, rather than the great split flukes of a whale. Herman moves farther along in history, referring to the ancient Italian artist by the name of Guido Reni, who has a famous painting and one you should absolutely look up and check out. I'd imagine these paintings were insanely humorous to Herman. He heavily questions the merit of the artists here, posing the question, where did Guido get the model of such a strange creature? And indeed, it is odd-looking. It resembles a snake-like, dragon-headed sea monster. Another artist by the name of William Hogarth, who depicted a similar scene in his own style, 
but not much better regarding the whale. In fact, worse. This image is easily attainable by a quick search online. The image of this whale looks like some odd large fish, with two spouts emerging from its nostrils and tusks alongside its head. Herman very carefully pokes fun at these, though respectfully, of course. Herman goes on to describe a few more odd images, and where, how, and why he believes they came into existence. I'd bargain that he's 100% correct in these incredible assumptions of the art of old. But now, Herman wants to move further ahead, into the first scientific and supposedly correct images of whales, which he also has some glaring issues with, and rightfully so. He calls these scientific sober delineations by those who know. Herman points out specific wrongdoings in many of these images, which can also be found online, such as whales lying on top of frozen islands, and what he calls a prodigious blunder, which nowadays I would make out to mean uh, an embarrassing mistake, of a picture of a whale being drawn with perpendicular flukes, which is quite ridiculous. Herman mentions an image that was drawn by a captain of a more modern whale ship that was supposed to help his crew members specify the sperm whale, but the scale is all wrong, and the eye of the whale in the image, to the scale of the image, would make the eye five feet wide, which we all know is ridiculous, even for a gigantic whale. Herman rhetorically asks the captain here, why did you not give us Jonah looking out of that eye? Which is a lovely little anecdote. He then looks at much more modern books that were for school children and education that have quite outlandish images of whales and narwhals that seem to be drawn more in the vein of fantasy rather than true-to-life accuracy. Now Herman wants to top this all off with the most absurd and modern taking under of the image of the whale. In just 1836, the scientific Frederick Cuvier published a natural history of whales in which Herman believes the worst depiction of a whale to exist. And he playfully says that if you were going to show this image to any Nantucketer, who clearly knows what a whale looks like, you'd best plan for a quick retreat from that region. He says in a word, a whale is not a whale, but a squash. He does give credit to the man, saying he never had the benefit of going on a whaling voyage himself, as not many men have. But where he derived this image from, who can tell? Now, with all this being said, Herman wants to slightly excuse all of these mishaps, for he says that these mistakes are not so surprising after all. And for us to consider the fact that most of these scientific drawings of the whale have been taken from the stranded fish, that meaning the dead whale washed upon the shore. Drawing from this image will give you an accurate depiction, just about as close as you could get to trying to draw a fully rigged ship just by looking at its shipwreck. Elephants have stood for full length for the artist, but the living leviathan has never floated himself still for a portrait. This is not to mention the vast difference in appearance from a young whale to a fully grown. And even then, the bulk of the whale's bodies are always underwater. Well, maybe looking at the skeleton of a whale would give some hints to its bodily proportions, but Herman says that this is not so. It is very curious that the skeleton of the whale does not give many hints to its true-to-life shape. Herman here makes reference to Jeremy Bentham, a man who has his body preserved in a sitting position in a certain museum for centuries. 
It's very lifelike and very creepy. You know, there's some pictures of it you can search up. Now, the bones of the whale's fin strikingly resemble that of a human hand, but missing the thumb. The four bone fingers being permanently lodged in the flesh covering, as the human's hand would be inside of a mitten. In fact, Mr. Stubb often packs. In fact, Mr. Stubb often jokes about the whales wearing mittens. Now, Herman believes that the true Leviathan is the one creature in the world that must remain unpainted to the last. It is truly remarkable that in this modern age we are able to view so much of the whale in its natural habitat. We should not take these modern advancements for granted. In Herman's lifetime, there was no earthly way to truly view the whale. The only way you could get some true general idea was to go a whaling yourself. But by doing so, you run no small risk of being eternally smashed and sunken by him. And so Herman warns, you had best not be too fast to act on your curiosities surrounding the great creature. And where does Melville decide to take us next? Well, as I mentioned at the the start of the episode, the philosophy progresses from primal to incredibly imaginative and deep. We take a look at the images of whales and whaling scenes that are more correct. Taking a step back, one wonders if these portions were planned or not. Herman writes here that since he has just told us about the incorrect images, he's strongly tempted to inform us of the still more monstrous stories of whales from ancient and modern texts, as well as more true-to-life paintings and such. He also tells us that in writing, he may just pass the matter by. Can you try to imagine the writing process of this man? It's just mind-blowing to me. We are immediately referred to two writers in books that Herman believes are wonderfully correct in their telling of the sperm whale and the images provided. These amazing paintings and images are all available online with a quick search of Huggins' Whale. But the best of all of these, Thomas Beale. He hit it right on the nose. The book, The Natural History of the Sperm Whale by Beale, can still be bought today, though some of the copies are worth over five grand. Herman tells us that he enjoyed the book very much for its pleasant images and its exactness. Now Herman tells us about the right whale and quickly refers to William Scoresby, someone we know that Herman absolutely admired. He only wishes that Scoresby had drawn his images slightly larger. But, Herman tells us, by far the absolute best, most lifelike and fantastic images of whales and battling whales ever to be engraved are French engravings by someone named Ambroise Garnery. They represent attacks on the sperm whale, and Herman cannot say enough about them. He says it's like someone taking a still image photograph of a true-to-life scene. They are truly incredible images, and after this episode airs, I'll be posting them to my Instagram, so make sure you follow me at Night Reader Podcast. Herman admits that these images are not picture-perfect. The anatomy of the whale can be slightly off here and there. But let that pass, he tells us, as he could never imagine drawing one so incredibly well himself. The whole scene is wonderfully depicted, with men floating in the water and attempting to swim away in fear, whaling tools and lines floating about in the water, and men jumping from the boat in fear. Herman tells us he knows not who this man is or was, but he knows one thing for sure, and that is that he almost 100% is sure that he must have gone whaling himself. That, or he was marvelously tutored by some incredibly experienced whalemen. 
In Herman's words, I quote, the French are the lads for painting action, unquote, and refers to the many battle scenes painted over the years. He explains the French as having a natural aptitude for seizing the picturesqueness of things, which I totally agree with. The French in this time were nowhere near the English or American status when it came to whaling. America led by a large mile, and the French had barely dabbled in it. The American artist seems content to drawing the profile or the outline of the whale, which Herman says is about as good as conveying beauty in them as drawing a simple triangle to represent a pyramid. This thought process and anecdotes are always wonderful from the incredible mind of Herman. He goes on to describe in detail a few more of these correct images before we are finally passed to the third and final chapter, that being of whales in paint, in teeth, in wood, in sheet iron, in time, in mountains, in stars. Even the wonderful title chapter here is exceptionally well written, and whether it was premeditated or not, we will never know. But it progresses so wonderfully, as I mentioned earlier, from the simple and the primal to the highly philosophical and grand. Within these chapters, Herman is clearly placing value in the aspect of true experience of life. Now, you may not be able to tell it upon the first or even the fifth read, but this chapter opens up with an awesome amount of sly Melvillian humor. We hear a funny story about a beggar who claims to have lost his leg to a whale. Herman compares the stump of the leg to that of a tree stump in a western clearing. And there's even a hilarious term Melville coined here, that being a stump speech. Herman must have been in some sort of mood here. He tells us of a well-known beggar on the London docks who holds a wooden sign with a painting of three whales attacking three ships. The beggar stands on one leg only, with the other half missing, and claims that the whale has taken his leg. Herman tells us that this poor and crippled whalesman's drawings of the whales are up there with some of the best he's ever seen, and the reason why is direct experience. Whalemen have a knack for drawing whales upon odd objects, or whatever they had at hand. Pieces of wood, carving in benches or tools, or what is known as scrimshaw, which is carving into whalebone or teeth the images of whales, or oceans, or even full scenes. This goes to show the direct experience is something to be sought after and looked up to, and it shows itself simply in life. Indeed, these men spend months and months at sea, carving into teeth and bone of the whale. Some of them had little boxes of dentistical-looking tools, specially intended for this art, but generally, they carve away with their jackknife and nothing else. Herman calls the knife the omnipotent tool for the whalemen, the all-useful. They will turn you out any image you desire, with just a knife and a bone. Talk about primal. Herman states here, with incredible philosophical flourish, that long exile from civilization and Christendom will inevitably restore a man to the condition that God placed him, and or savagery. Notice here that Herman does not say revert, but rather restore. This harkens back heavily to Herman's first novel, Taipei, where he realizes how much happier and healthier men are who have lived untouched from modern civilizations. Not revert, but rather restore as if this is the most natural state and proper state a man should be in. 
Herman here calls himself a savage who owes no allegiance. Heavy stuff here. A wonderful characteristic of the savage is the incredible patience they possess. An ancient Hawaiian war club or spear paddle, Melville claims, are great trophies of human perseverance. What other animal could spend so lengthy a time working on something for pure art and pleasure? But only having a piece of broken shell or shark tooth to carve with, this art takes years of study application to achieve. He tells us the whaleman savage has learned that same patience. He compares the art and application to it the Greeks and other ancient primal artistry. We are then introduced to wooden slabs and such, which I would like to say are absolutely still a thing and a wonderful art piece. There are some Instagram wood shops I'd like to point out to you if you follow me who make breathtaking carved wooden whales. I'd love to get my hands on wood, uh, as well as some true-to-life scrimshaw eventually. We are told that there is a metalwork for whales, too. Huge brass-tailed knockers for roadside country houses, and sometimes a weather vane atop a steeple in the shape of a whale. Here we are now to look deeper into the earth, in ribby regions of the earth, where Herman describes the shapes and profiles of gigantic whales, in mountains, cliffs, and rocky heights. Now, we look to the stars. It seems man is prone to see in the stars that which he spends the majority of his time thinking about or doing. This calls to mind self-manifestation and the idea that you are what you think. He mentions war tribes of ancient who saw in the stars what else than war scenes. And so Melville, while out at sea in chase of the whale, has seen the shapes of whales in the stars. And in incredible poetic and philosophical flourish, once again, Herman ends the chapter, saying he wishes he could ride up and out into the stars, with anchors and harpoons as bridle and spurs, to see whether the fabled heavens, with all their countless tents, really lie encamped beyond his mortal sight. And Herman finishes off strong and wild as always bringing these three chapters to a wonderfully poetic peak. These chapters serve as not only educational pieces, but so much more beyond that. And that is why it sometimes pains me to hear of people skipping over these chapters, or sometimes having them removed in certain versions. Herman's mind is truly special, and these chapters are as well. We learn about true human experience and the value of it. We learn about self-manifestation, and as always, we had a fun time while reading it. As we sit beside Herman here. Knights, I implore you to pick up these wonderful books and fight through them with all of your might. For only by being in the shoes of another can we truly begin to understand these wonderful experiences. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Please go on follow me on all my socials and catch up to my prior episodes that you may have missed. Reach out to me and tell me how you've liked everything. And thanks so much again for being here. Well, knights, go on. Drop your swords. Pick up your pens and reading spectacles. Let us read on.